remain standing as we read God's word, which comes to us from the Gospel of John. The reading begins at the very end of chapter 7 and continues on through the first 11 verses of chapter 8. Let's hear God's word. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis to accuse him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go and leave your life of sin. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word, and to him be all praise and honor and glory now and always. Amen. You may be seated. So last month in Meredith Hall, we had 64 people all gather for what's called community navigator training. A community navigator is somebody that knows the lay of the land of healthcare resources and social service resources for those in financial distress. And we've been doing this program here in Scottsdale for uh, uh, 12 years now, and it was our largest turnout ever for this training. So we had, uh, for uh, our church here, some of our Stephen ministers and deacons and people in our care team because that's good knowledge for them to have and we also had representatives from uh, various churches throughout the valley and from nonprofits and uh, quite a contingent from the Scottsdale schools come out for this training so it was really great time and we've uh, uh, filmed all of that so we have those six sessions that were given that uh, that day that all be posted online soon on the Mountain View website. The very first presentation was by Jennifer Murphy. She is the director of the Granite Reef Senior Center. How many people have been to the Granite Reef Senior Center? One. Okay. Anyway. Oh, two. Uh, several people. Oh, yeah. Okay. These those who will admit that. Anyway. Uh, so she said uh, she had this very unusual situation um, a couple months back. She got a call from a local bank president. And he said, we've got a problem. There's this woman that comes in. Uh, every weekday, and she greets people that come into the bank. She makes sure that they know where to go. She makes sure all of our deposit slips are straightened. There's only one problem. She doesn't work here. <laughs> but she thinks she works here. And we keep on telling her, you know, you don't, you're not really a bank employee. And she says, okay. And then the next day, she shows up again. And so Jennifer says, okay, well, go send somebody to her home to do an assessment. And so they did that, and they found out that Uh, The woman had lost her husband about two years ago. Um, She had obviously the signs, the beginning signs of dementia. And she had, er, early in her life, been in the banking industry. 
So they had to figure out what to do because they can't just sit, say to her, you're not a bank employee because she'll forget that. So they decided to, uh, Jennifer came up with this idea of doing something outside the box. So they were going to throw her a retirement party. <laughs> and they would, uh, you know, get a cake and with her name on it, happy retirement, Alice, you know, and they, they would take pictures and then they'd make this big poster that had some of these photographs and it would say in big bold letters, happy retirement, Alice, and they'd put it uh, in her kitchen wall right next to the back door where she would always leave to go to the bank. And Jennifer th thought that this might actually work in this rare occasion. So she proposed all this to the bank president, and to her amazement, the bank president said yes. He was highly motivated that she not come to the bank anymore. <laughs> and so the day came, they had the cake, and uh, all the bank employees were so thrilled about this. They thought it was a great idea. Everybody was taking selfies with Alice and they, they got a, a collection of all of the things that were advertisements for the banks, pens and pencils. And they put in a gift bag for her, a little gift basket for her. And afterwards, they put the poster up and it solved that dilemma. And I love that we live in a city that can think outside the box like that. Now, when we read the story of Jesus, Jesus is always thinking outside the box. He's always coming up with unusual things to say or do that keeps me wanting to know Jesus better. And one of the most dramatic stories of this is when Jesus is teaching in the temple courts and religious leaders bring to him a woman caught in the very act of adultery. And it's a tense situation because they ask Jesus if this woman should be put to death. But in the, what Jesus says and what Jesus does in response to that, it's outside the box. We begin the story with stones that are weapons, stones of malice. And they become, instead of weapons, burdens for the people, stones of ballast. And then after all that's done, they're only the background to what Jesus will say one-on-one -on -one with this particular woman. And so we see in this Jesus giving us models, models for diffusing tension, and that's a skill we all need uh, in this day and age, and skills of how to be better at forgiving others by understanding that we also need to receive forgiveness. And then just in the exchange of, of Jesus and the woman, I keep on reading it and think this is like every prayer I've prayed in my life since I invited Jesus into my heart. It's trying to uh, figure out what Jesus wants to say to me and what I want to say to Jesus and how my life will be different because of my encounter in prayer with Jesus Christ. So I think there's some great lessons for us today. This message is the first of a series of talks we're doing on Jesus and the stones of Lent. So next week we'll be looking at uh, Jesus talking about how he's going to build his church on the rock. And uh, then the following Sunday, how the rejected stone becomes the cornerstone in Jesus' teaching. Then on Palm Sunday, Jesus says if the people were silent on Palm Sunday, even the stones would cry out. And then during Holy Week, uh, Pastor Kirk and Pastor Drew will be bringing messages about the stone of agony where Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then the final stone, the, the Rock of Golgotha, where Jesus is crucified. And then Easter morning, the stone that gets rolled away. And some of you are thinking, boy, for a carpenter, there's a lot of stories in here about Jesus and stones. And there's a reason for that. And to explain that, we have to have our New Testament Greek word of the day, which is tectone. Let's all say that together, tectone. 
So tectone is usually translated in English versions as carpenter, but the Greek word is more general than that. It's about a builder, a master builder, a, a, a tradesman, or what we might call a general contractor. So when European nations were translating that, they usually put carpenter in English and other languages. But it's more general than that. And because the soil in his hometown of Nazareth was pretty poor for growing a lot of tall trees, Jesus, as a young man, probably learned as many skills or more skills as a stonemason than a carpenter. I know that blows some of your minds, but just follow that away. We'll come back to these stories of Jesus and stones in the next few weeks. We want to look at this, uh, this story of Jesus and these stones that people wanted to use to destroy a woman's life. These began as stones of malice. And here we find Jesus giving us a model for diffusing anger through humility. Jesus is living out grace here, uh, like we see in Romans chapter 12. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. So this story begins as a setup. People are trying to trick Jesus. And just in case we miss that, uh, the gospel writer says for us, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So what was the trap? What were they trying to uh, get Jesus to do? Well, St. Augustine helps us to sort this out. He said uh, they wanted or expected Jesus to say the woman should not be put to death. And if Jesus said that, it would put him in opposition to the law. It would make Jesus side with lawbreakers. But Jesus had no intention of saying the other thing, let her die, because Jesus did not come to destroy those he found, but to save the lost. And so Jesus and what he says... And what he does, he gives the perfect response. It's justice and clemency and truth and full measure all in one. So we also know in this story how you kind of figure out what's going on. Are the people really concerned about the wrath of God or are they cut away in their own wrath? They make the woman stand before Jesus and say to him, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. How humiliating would that have been? And in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Now, what Jesus could have said at that point is that, well, that's actually not what the law says. If you go and reread your Bibles, it says both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. So where's the man? You know, something's not adding up here. Uh, they were not so much angry at the woman. They probably didn't care anything about the woman or the situation, but it was an opportunity to trick Jesus. And then Jesus begins something unexpected. He begins to disarm the self-righteous. And he does that by bending down and starting to write on the ground with his finger. Now, did you catch that Jesus was already seated before he does this? So he has to bend even lower. Why was Jesus seated? Because that's what happens when rabbis began to teach 2,000 years ago. I mean, when I come up to the pulpit, I start reading the Bible, you say, yeah, he's going to give us a sermon, isn't he? But 2,000 years ago, that's not how it was done. Uh, look at the Sermon on the Mount. If you go to uh, Matthew chapter 5, it says, Jesus went up on a hill, and when he was set, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and began to teach them. Even in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sits down before he teaches. So Jesus is seated, and then he bends even lower before he's going to respond to these people who are angry. 
Uh, days ago, the New York Times published a prayer that was written by a pastor's wife fleeing Ukraine as her pastor husband remained in the country to help people. And it's really moving in so many ways, but it's this paragraph that really caught my attention where she prayed and encouraged other people to pray. We repent of making idols of political leaders and news outlets. Forgive us for wanting them to be our gods and saviors. Forgive us for being unreasonable, for not wanting to admit both the good and the bad in all of our leaders. It is this spirit that leads us to dictators because we abandon responsibility and reason. We confess the seeds of war that live in our own hearts. She'd already been humbled by things out of her control, by a war that was causing great suffering, and she humbled herself further, which is not what you would expect. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. So let's pause for a moment and think about how we can live that out in our own lives. When has your own anger gotten you in trouble? And some of you are thinking, when hasn't my anger gotten me in trouble? <laughs> but, but think about a particular time when you, you, you lost your temper and you regretted that deeply afterwards. What was that like? How did you feel? What were the ramifications of that? And then when have you seen anger unexpectedly diffused by somebody being humble, by somebody uh, who's being yelled at and, and they don't yell back, or in a situation where people are all upset and somebody stays calm in the midst of that, does something unexpected that dissipates or uh, it, it brings the whole temperature of the room down. When have you seen that happen? When have you seen that be effective? Psychologists call that being a non-anxious presence. Just because somebody is angry with me doesn't mean that I need to be angry with them. I can make a different choice, a humble choice. So in these stones of malice, Jesus gives us an example of how we can diffuse anger with humility. He also gives us here a model for forgiving others by a new self-understanding, by understanding that all of us need to receive forgiveness, not just some of us needing to be forgiven. And we see this in Romans chapter 2, which begins, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for on whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. At the beginning of the story, Jesus begins to show people the burden of their own actions. When they kept on questioning Jesus, he straightens up and says to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. In first and second grade, I had the same teacher for first and second grade, and that was Mrs. Carlson. She had a first and second grade class combined in elementary school, and she was a great teacher, great teacher. She would make up songs to help us remember the water cycle and all these songs, probably why I did the Ten Commandments song because of Mrs. Carlson. 
And one week, Mrs. Carlson was started asking people to raise their hand if they knew answers to questions. And, and there was one, two, or three students, not me, but one, two, or three students in our class that always knew the answers, always to raise their hand, and she would call on them. And then the next week, she did something different. She would ask questions, ask people to raise their hand, and then she would call on people who had not raised their hand. And we knew that it was a dangerous territory at that point. And we're all trying to figure out, what do we do now? And so we said, aha, we'll start raising our hands every time Mrs. Carlson asks a question. Because <laughs> it's the only safe thing, right? So she asked a question the next day. I raised my hand up, and she called on me. <laughs> I had no idea what the answer was. Now, that is exactly what Jesus is doing here. They come, they want to know, Jesus, should we stone her right now? Jesus says, okay, uh, first one of you that has no sin, go ahead. And they knew that they were caught. They were caught by their own actions, the own, their own setup of Jesus. But then they also start to be caught up and burdened by their guilt. Again, he stoops down, being humble, not raising the, the temperature of the situation, but lowering it. And he wrote on the ground, and at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first. So you wonder, what in the world was Jesus writing on the ground that caused this to happen? So there, there have been different explanations of this. I, I like the uh, best the explanation by that great theologian, Johnny Cash. <laughs> so uh, Johnny Cash, he did a movie of the life of Christ, the Gospel Road. And in the movie, he had, it shows Jesus writing with his finger on the ground, and he's writing out the Ten Commandments, which we've just studied. And he begins writing out lying. Um, disrespecting parents, murder, adultery. And one by one, as Jesus writes these things out, the people start leaving. The older ones first because older, wiser, but eventually everybody's gone because the burdens of what each person has done begins to weigh on them. Then they have to deal with the burden of a false self-image until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. There have been a great deal of studies in the last couple decades about self-assessments, either self-assessments for the workplace or self-assessments in an educational setting. Uh, there have been dozens and dozens of studies uh, looking at the data. And uh, uh, to summarize the findings, uh, number one, self-assessments are important, they're valuable. And number two, they're very difficult to do. It's very difficult to get an accurate self-assessment for anybody to accurately assess how she or he has done. And there are different reasons for this, and all the studies have uh, different proposed reasons of why this is so, but here's five reasons that uh, come up again in a lot of these studies. Number one, people underestimate how well they've done. Number two, they overestimate how well they've done. Number three, they forget what they've done. You know, they, they, they can't remember some of the good things they've done or some of the bad things that, that they've done. Uh, number four, they remember what they've done, but they don't understand how it fits in the big picture, why it would be significant. And number five, they misinterpret the goal. They can remember all sorts of things that they've done that are not related to the, the uh, school assignment or the job assignment, and they get very proud of that, but not, hey, that's not what we ask you to do. So it's very difficult to get an accurate self-assessment in a work setting or in an education setting. So how much more difficult is it for you and me to know accurately 
how are we doing spiritually? How are we doing with what God wants us to do or to be what God wants us to be? You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Again, let, let's pause. Let's think about how this applies to our, our own lives. Um, when have you had to seek forgiveness of somebody and they forgave you? You may have had a situation where you've asked forgiveness and forgiveness was not granted. I want you to think of a situation where you've had to ask forgiveness. You've done something wrong. You were sorry about it. You went to the person directly and you said, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. The seven hardest words in the English language and they forgave you. What did that feel like? What were the ramifications after you did something like that? And then I want you to think about a time when somebody came to you and said those seven hardest words in the English language, I was wrong, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And you forgave them. What did that feel like? You see, everybody in the story has a false image of who they are. The religious leaders had this false idea that they were doing exactly the right thing, trying to trick Jesus. The woman caught in adultery had a false image of who she was. She thought she would never had a place in God's family again. And she was wrong. A new way of Diffusing tension, a, a new model for being better at forgiving others, understanding that we need to be forgiven. And Jesus here gives us a new model of prayer just in their interaction with this woman. I see here every prayer of my life as a Christian. It's always, what does God want to say to me? What do I want to say to God? And how will my life be different because of the encounter I have in prayer with our Lord and Savior? It's a model for seeking and asking and knocking. As Jesus has instructed us, I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. So what will Jesus say? This woman is thinking. And what he says is, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? What has God been saying in your life? Oh, by the way, did you notice... Jesus finally stands up. Jesus is not in a position to look the woman eye to eye until that very moment. And a lot of the paintings of this, or the portrayals in movies and TVs, get it wrong. She's not on the ground cowering. Jesus lifts her up. She's been standing the whole time. But Jesus now lifts up to meet her eye to eye. Because Jesus wants to say something to her. What will he say? What has God been saying to you this past week? What's happened in your life? What's happened in the world around you? What scriptures have uh, been brought to mind or what have you read this past week? God loves you. God wants you to draw closer to him. What has God been saying to you? What are you aware of? And that can be the basis of what you say to God as you go to God in prayer. So what does the woman say? What will she say? What can she say? She says, no one, sir, 
Now, usually I have a whole list when I go to God in prayer, right? You've got a list of things to pray about, things going on in my life, um, loved ones I want God to bless, situations in the world that make me nervous, worried, bring all that to God. But what will be my response to God because of what God has been saying to me? That's why it's a good practice right before you pray to, to read a verse or a paragraph or a chapter of the Bible to just get in the mode of, you know, God does want to talk with me. God wants to, me to hear him. Certainly I want to say some things to God, but what has God said to me? Then what do I want to say? What do I need to say to God? And then how will her life be different going forward? Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Again, St. Augustus helps us unpack all this. He says um, that Jesus said, neither will I condemn you. You need have no fear of the past, but be aware of what you do in the future. Neither will I condemn you. I have blotted out what you have done. Now observe what I've commanded in order to obtain what I have promised. What's your next step with God? If God's been speaking to you, and God has, and you've been speaking to God, and you have, how will your life be different? What's at least the next step? Next thing that you want different, the next step of faith that you will take, because that time that you have spent alone with our master. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Where do you see God at work around you? In the conversations you've had this past week, um, in the things that you've done, things that you have attempted to do that didn't work out, the people that you've been able to encourage, where do you see God at work? And what scriptures do come to mind as you think what God might be saying to you? What's the next step you will take as a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus thinks outside the box. We live in a community where we can give a retirement party to a woman that hasn't even worked. And God can do amazing things in our lives and God has done amazing things in your life and mine. Where is God leading you now? To a new model for diffusing tensions through humility, through a new model of Receiving or giving forgiveness by receiving forgiveness yourself. A new model of prayer. Seek, ask, knock. May God's grace live in you and work through you this week and always. Let's pray. Holy God, we we thank you that we serve a wonderful Savior. We thank you for his wisdom and how he teaches us in what he says and what he did. Lord, keep on teaching us. Help us to follow you. Help us to pray and to act, trusting in your goodness. And Lord, if there's anyone here that feels far from you, if there's anyone that feels like they don't have a place in your family, Lord, lift them up. Encourage them. Forgive them. Lead them. And if this sounds like you, if, if you would like to start over with God in some fresh way, but you're not sure how to do that, 
I would encourage you to pray silently the words of a very simple prayer I'm about to pray now. Just repeat these words silently in your heart as your prayer of faith to God this morning. Your way of telling God, yes. Here's the prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. I'm sorry about the wrong things I've done. Forgive me. Come to me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help me follow you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.